Hey, good morning, Arise Church. How are you all this morning? Excellent. Obviously, I am not Pastor Matt. Um, as some of you may be here because you were invited for this perfect church message, we're not the perfect church, and we just thought we'd show you that by delaying the start of that series by one week, right? Um, some things happen. I'm so glad to be here. My name is Kenton. Um, my wife and I um, have called this church home for uh, many years now, and uh, most recently we moved um, we moved abroad in August of last year um, with with the desire just to share the gospel. So we're back here for a couple of uh, a couple more weeks. Um, we're glad to be here, and most of all, I'm thankful uh, for the opportunity to um, share God's word with you today. Um, so when you do move to the country where we live in North Africa. Um, one of the first things that you are instantly made aware of is that Islam is the law of the land because no less than five times a day, the, the call to prayer rings out from loudspeakers across the city about every three or four blocks or so. Um, and it goes something like this. Ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah. Wa ashadu an Muhammad Rasulallah. Hayya Allah as-salah. Which means there is no God except Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Run to prayer, run to salvation. And many go running to the masjid or the mosques at, even at 4 a.m. And they are running so hard to achieve holiness in order to earn the favor of Allah. And ironically, in at least a couple of places in the Quran, salvation actually is received when Allah simply decides to forgive whomever he wills. No penalty, no consequence for sin. Allah just decides to forgive. Now to some of you, this actually sounds pretty attractive. Allah is capable of anything they say. So he can forgive without any sacrifice, and certainly not the sacrifice of his own son. So one thing that I've learned in the last year is that while the spiritual life of a Muslim may look a little bit different on the surface, it's very similar in many ways to the spiritual lives of many Americans today. And they are working so hard to be good people as defined by their worldview and their culture, but ultimately, their hope is arbitrary and uncertain. Their hope and the hope of all who do not know Christ is that God will one day just forget about all the ways that we have daily made him in our image and that he will just forget about all of their sins. But if you stop for just a minute and think about this view of God and sin, you have no choice but to conclude that this is actually a very small view of God and a low view of the seriousness of sin. Because if God or Allah were to arbitrarily choose to forgive sin without any penalty, then he might be the bestower of mercy, which is one of the 99 names of Allah in the Quran. But he is not the utterly just. 
He might be the partner, but he is not the equitable. Because if an utterly just God and an equitable God were to let even just one sin, one injustice go unpunished, he would not be just or equitable. And deep down, we all want injustice to be punished. That is until we discover that we ourselves are the guilty ones. So they run. And really, we all run in our own ways. Some of us imagine that in our moral superiority, we are leaving the field behind. Others of us jog along the sidelines, lollygagging, pretending that we don't care to or need to run. Still others have convinced themselves that they've fallen so far behind that they will never catch up in the race to moral goodness. There isn't a single religion or way of seeing the world that doesn't teach morality in some way. Islam, Christianity, even modern humanism are no exception to this. And on the basis of shared moral striving, millions of people, including many Christians, have explicitly or implicitly bought into the Oprah Winfrey or Deepak Chopra version of spirituality that says that all religions are basically the same and the primary purpose of religion is, to, is for self-affirmation and to make you a better person. That's not what I see in the Bible. This is not an instruction manual for how to be a moral person. It is first and foremost a book about God and his faithful love for his children. What I see in the Bible is that the life of the Christian, though it may sometimes outwardly look like the moral striving of others, is wholly different and it's better because our faith is not in a process. It's in a person who never fails and our hope is assured, not uncertain. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word. I pray that as we turn to your holy scriptures this morning, that you would forgive me if I mishandle your word. But I pray that this morning we would turn to your precious words and see you for who you are, not for who we want you to be, because who we want you to be is so much less than who you've revealed yourself to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app um, on your device, turn with me. We're gonna be looking at a passage in 1 Peter. And we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. So if you have brunch plans, maybe you wanna text someone and cancel them. Uh, but let me just quickly summarize what's going on in the first 12 verses. Y'all are chosen. When you believe in Christ, you're chosen. Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest 
friends, and companions during his three years of ministry reminds his readers of their identity in Christ because Jesus died and is risen, those who believe in him have been born again already into God's family. And the richness of God is theirs because he chose to have mercy on them. God is the creator and owner of everything, and all of that is yours as a child of God. And they rejoice with inexpressible joy, even in trials and hardships, because the trials and the hardships are the proof that their faith is genuine and pure. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, then Peter is describing you and me. He's reminding us of the assured hope that we have through faith in Christ. Faith in a person, not a process. Regardless of whether you are Christian, you know that you need faith and hope. Because for more than two years now, we've been told to have hope that this pandemic would end. And for your entire life, you've been told, just have faith that everything will turn out okay. As if the mere act of having faith is all that you need to get through this life. But I ask, in what have you put your faith? Is it in yourself? You know that you can't count on yourself because you've let yourself down way too often in the past. Is it in your family, your husband, your wife, your children, maybe your parents? Well, they've let you down too. Or is your hope in the eat, pray, love version of spirituality that tells you to seek the God within? If I'm being honest, I would make a terrible God for myself and an even worse God for all of you. You see, when hope is amorphous and undefined and the object of faith is subjective, transient, ever-changing, how can you ever be sure that your life is on solid ground? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that when you put your faith in him, you are immediately reborn again into a living hope that is unchanging, unfading, never-ending, and guaranteed because it relies not on what you can do, but on what God has done by sending his son for you. So let's jump into our text in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, or since you have already been born again, this is so important to understand because everything else that we're gonna talk about this morning is the evidence that you have already been adopted or reborn into God's family. Do not get this order wrong. Moral goodness and striving 
is the fruit of the transformation that has already occurred by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. It is not the basis on which we obtain salvation. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, which is literally girding up the loins of your mind. Where we live in North Africa, we actually have probably the best possible visual of what this means, girding up the, the loins of your mind, because everywhere you look, especially on Fridays, men are wearing long robes called a jalabiya. They're probably ankle length, if not slightly longer than that. And if you wanted to run, you would have to gather up the bottom of your skirt and tuck it into your waistband or tie it around your waist. Otherwise, you would trip and fall. And so that is the imagery of this phrase, girding up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Peter is not referring to just being drunk. What he's exhorting his readers and us to do is to have a clear mind. Don't numb yourself to God by imbibing the things of this world. So what are the things in your life that you constantly imbibe that numb your mind to God? Do you binge the latest TV shows? Do you spend every waking moment chasing the next adrenaline rush or promotion at work? Do you constantly chase busyness? Or do you spend hours upon hours in some sort of virtual world interacting with avatars and disembodied voices over cyberspace? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these things in and of themselves until they cause you to lose sight of God. The Apostle John actually puts it this way in um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here, the world does not mean God's creation or even all of humankind. As author David Wells said, the world is that system of values whose source is human sinfulness and whose expression is cultural. It is that collective life which validates our personal sin. It is everything in society that makes sinful attitudes and practices look normal. So many of us are getting hooked on messaging today that tells us just do what makes you feel good. Be whomever you want to be. Just be free to express yourselves. Or to paraphrase the great Captain Pete Mitchell, a.k.a. Maverick, it's not just what I do, it's who I am whatever it happens to be for all of you. Except, don't we always find that the world abandons us to find a way on our own to cope with or ignore the struggles 
and the ridicule that inevitably come our way when we buy into this type of mindset. And since it's on us to create our own identity, we become drunk on ourselves and on the world. And we become numb to God. You are not an avatar. To all of the teenagers, you are not an avatar. Your identity does not need to be manufactured based on what you do or how you feel. That's a lie. You're created in the image of God. And he says that you have intrinsic value and purpose simply because his impression is on you. If you sober up and set your hope fully on Jesus, you might just have a chance at discovering a lasting, permanent identity and purpose as one who bears the imprint of God. But the command in this verse 13 is not preparing your minds and being sober-minded. Those are actually the things that we must continually do in order to obey the command. The command is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that? What is the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? And how in the world do we set our hope on it? Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy. We don't like that idea, do we? Especially as evangelicals, right? We're saved by grace, not by works. I'm starting to sound a little bit like a legalist, right? That's what we say, except we forget that coming to Jesus and doing what he commanded is the rock on which we should build our spiritual house, Luke chapter six. And that is the very point of these verses we don't attach our salvation to our works, but we strive for holiness. We practice righteousness as defined by the word of God because that is the evidence of our changed lives as sons and daughters of God. Since you are already in Christ, says Peter, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What Peter is trying to say is that before you knew Christ, your entire way of life, your entire way of thinking and doing life was unholy. Why? It's because before Christ, you were ignorant of God. Without Christ, all people are ignorant of the true God, but with Christ, we have true knowledge of God. Since you now have true knowledge of God, be holy because God is holy. And of course, Peter is referencing the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. 
And here's my best effort at covering our holiness in about one minute. Everything in God's creation can be separated into two categories, holy and common. Everything is common or ordinary unless it is declared holy or pleasing by God. Did you get that? Holiness is not adhering to a set of behaviors in order to make yourself pleasing to God. Holiness is a declaration by God that he is pleased. Or when you read Leviticus, do you really think that the burning aroma of an unblemished lamb is more pleasing than the burning aroma of any other lamb? No, it was holy because God declared it to be so. Holiness, as it relates to you and me, refers to someone being set apart from ordinary people and from ordinary ways of life to the pleasure of God for his glory and for our ultimate flourishing. In Christ, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons because he was the ultimate sacrifice for sins and God the Father was pleased with him. It's finished. You are adopted. Like a good father, God is pleased with you. Not just, or God is pleased with you just because you are his child. Now, if you call God your father, then be like him. Not by working hard to behave a certain way, but simply by being transformed into the image of his son by the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Again, the Apostle John in the first letter of John, chapter three, verse two says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Think of it this way. Young children learn to imitate mom and dad simply by being a son or daughter. My own daughter, Judah, doesn't go around thinking, I gotta be funny just like daddy, right? She is learning to be funny because I'm funny. And she's my daughter. In the same way, you shall be holy for I am holy should not be taken as a command to behave in certain ways in an effort to be moral. That is the backwards and religious way of understanding the Bible that leads to a form of Christianity and, a re and religiosity that results in either self-righteousness or despair. Self-righteousness over your own perceived moral success or despair over your failures. But the gospel turns this upside down because Jesus says that the self-righteous should be humbled by the knowledge that they are in need of a savior just as much, if not more, than the morally suspect. And those who despair over their moral failures should rejoice because by grace they have found mercy and righteousness through what Christ has done.
amazing grace. You shall be holy for I am holy. This is a command simply to allow your dad to make his impression on you. It is an invitation to be near him, to observe him, and to imitate him in an imperfect but childlike, not childish, childlike way so that others will see something of God represented in you. And how are we to see what God is like in order to imitate him? The Bible. This is not an instruction manual for how to be a moral person. It is first and foremost about God and his faithful love for his children. Back to the question that I posed at the end of verse 13. What is the grace or the gift that will be brought to you when Jesus is ultimately revealed? I think it's holiness. When Jesus himself declares that he is pleased, well done, good and faithful servant. Set your hope on this, for it has been promised to all who believe. Halfway through, right? Jump ahead with me to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. For through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter now gives us and his readers a reason or a purpose for our adoption. And that is for sincere brotherly love. There are actually two words in the Greek in the Bible um, that are translated as love. It's worth noting here that Peter uses them both. As a Christian, your obedience to the truth of the gospel is for a sincere brotherly love, or Philadelphia in the Greek. This word typically describes an affectionate type of love as one might have for the closest of friends or a brother. In the New Testament, it is used to speak of the affectionate love of Christians toward all believers because of their shared spiritual life. When you are in Christ, all other followers of Christ are your brothers and sisters. This can be hard for many of us to accept and believe because Christianity is fractured into dozens if not hundreds of denominations, each one with their own specific traditions, and each one convinced that it has gotten right what all other denominations have gotten wrong. After just a year in North Africa, um, I'm more convinced that this type of bickering is a futile exercise of comfortable Christianity, and it's a key strategy in Satan's efforts to separate 
what God has joined together. Because at home in North Africa, fewer than five in 100 people claim to be Christian, according to the Joshua Project. And among those five people, maybe only one, if not zero, would be considered evangelical. So when Aaron and Judah and I realized that our spiritual growth and perseverance in Christ depends on being connected with fellow believers, did we really have the luxury of shutting out Catholics, non-evangelical Protestants, Pentecostals, or Orthodox believers? When we launched a small Bible study out of our home, we invited anyone who had shown even a little interest in Christ. And that first week, we focused on a passage of scripture that teases out the essence of what it means to follow Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through 19. And over the next few months, we walked through the book of Galatians together. And today, our Bible study comprises Catholics and non-evangelical Protestants like Lutherans, Anglicans, etc. Comprises us as evangelicals or Baptists and Pentecostals. I know and they know that we differ widely on things like how and when someone should be baptized, the necessity of a formal priesthood, or the role of music, art, and icons in worship. Yet, we are unified in sincere love for one another because we believe in our oneness with the one true God through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 22, Peter goes on to instruct his readers to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now this word love is agape in the Greek. And this word typically describes a sacrificial kind of love, a love that lays down one's life for others. What I think the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us is that Christian love is both affectionate toward others and an act of the will. It's a sacrifice. I have often been tempted to think that Christian love means graduating from brotherly, affectionate, warm, Philadelphia-type love to sacrificial, agape-type love. But the danger in this interpretation is that it can lead to sacrificial relationships that are obligatory, resentful, and cold. This passage refutes that error because it says that our obedience to Christ is with the explicit purpose of affection toward all believers. But warm feelings are not enough. Godly love is both affectionate and sacrificial. The reason why your will, why a sacrifice must be involved is because loving other Christians is hard. We can be huge jerks. 
I know because I've been on the giving and on the receiving end of that. You won't always have warm feelings toward other believers, whether it's over denominational tradition, political positions, the way someone behaves, or maybe just the fact that he took the last parking spot last week. You will not always have warm feelings toward your brothers and sisters. And so agape love does the hard work of maintaining your relationships in the midst of disagreements. If all we have is an affection towards someone, and that's how we define love, and by the way, increasingly, that's exactly how our culture defines love, then when your warm feelings go away, where does that leave your relationship? And how can you possibly love someone sacrificially when you cancel every relationship as soon as those warm feelings go away? Biblical love is both affectionate and committed because God's love toward us is both affectionate and committed. And this love is rooted in the hope that our ultimate reward is already being kept for us in heaven. It's already there today. And so your life isn't about how much stuff you accumulate or the recognition that you receive because the glory of the flesh is like the flowers of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. So guess what? That sets us free. That is true freedom. We're free to meet the needs of others. And we don't hold on so tightly to our pride and to our stuff and our desires and to our politics or even our very lives. Chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Notice that all of these involve hurting other people. And these are the things that wreck marriages. They wreck friendships, community groups, local churches, and ultimately the body of Christ. Behind every one of these is a desire to build yourself up and tear others down. They are opposed to love. But please don't start thinking that we should just put aside our doctrine in order to be unified and to love one another. Because when you begin to think like that, you have the order backward. It's precisely because of our doctrine, because of our obedience to the truth of Jesus, the only Son of God, crucified, risen, and buried. Sorry, crucified, buried, then risen, right? You gotta get the order right. 
It's because of this that we are able to love one another and be unified. So put aside those destructive behaviors and long for pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God, the Bible, right? The one, that one thing that we should never outgrow because by it, we grow into salvation. This isn't a rebuke of immature believers as it is in other passages in scripture. Here, it's an exhortation to continual spiritual growth. You must grow spiritually as individual members of the body so that the whole body will be built up. The body of Christ, of course, is the church. It's the only entity in this world, the only entity in this world that Christ specifically identifies himself with. Anyone who claims to love Jesus, but who says they cannot love or be involved with the church is cutting themselves off from Christ. I know that churches and Christians have been guilty of horrible things, maybe against you personally, but do not cut yourself off from the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is expressed physically in the gathering of God's children, a local church. As I grow into my own salvation, and as each of you do the same, the body grows and is built up in love so that the world will believe that God has sent Jesus. Growing up into salvation is understanding that salvation is not just that you were saved from the penalty of sin. It is that, but it's so, so, so much more. It is being saved from the power of sin today. It is the assurance that one day you will be free from the very presence of sin forever. It is embracing your new identity in Christ, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. You only first tasted the goodness of God when you were saved. So long for his word that we all may grow up to be more like him. Continue with me finally in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here we come to a glorious conclusion. In Christ, you and I are a royal priesthood and a holy nation chosen to proclaim God's glory to the world. The reason we looked at this long passage 
was to get to this truth. God chose to make his impression on you to be an expression of him. So how do we make our lives an expression of God? In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we do good works. We let our light shine. And we tell people it's because of our Father. If I may, let me give one very timely and practical example. Abortion. Right? Did the tension just rise a few notches? Look, I'm not interested in whether you are pro-life or pro-choice. The fact is that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. Because of this, there is likely to be hundreds of thousands of babies born in the coming years who likely would have been aborted. Regardless of your political stance, what is your Christian proclamation? How will you personally proclaim the excellencies of your good father to these mothers and babies, and yes, the fathers too, and families? Perhaps this means giving your time and love by building a family support system for a new single mother in this church or in your neighborhood. Maybe this means opening your home with joy to adopting a baby, especially if she has mental or physical challenges that you do not feel equipped to handle. Maybe this means being so generous with your treasures that a scared teenage girl would feel financially capable of choosing to keep a baby that she thought she could never provide for. Maybe you are uniquely qualified to help women who are seeking mercy for a decision made years ago over which they still grieve today. Mercy that is found only in Jesus Christ. Or maybe, maybe you're so angry at someone for what they've said or done in the name of Christ that you need to forgive and reconcile and remember that your unity in Christ matters far more than your disagreements over politics. Please, brothers and sisters, don't confuse your political and social positions for a life dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of your good father. 
God is pleased most, not by what you stand for, but by what you are willing to get on your knees for. Because if the glorious law of God could not change the hearts of men and women, how much less the puny laws of men and women. Just as Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples, we can proclaim the excellencies of God when we serve others in the same way. And notice that in verse nine, Peter didn't just say, share the excellencies of God. He said, proclaim. I really like how author and missionary Elliot Clark puts it in his book, um, Evangelism as Exiles. In it, he says, we must consider why we're only willing to speak the gospel when we perceive openness on the part of another. We must ponder whether we even have a category for proclaiming a message that people oppose, one that's innately offensive, or do we tiptoe through polite, spiritual conversations and timidly share our opinions and then call that evangelism. Far more than just sharing, evangelism involves testifying to Christ, warning, persuading, defending, pleading, and calling. Such authoritative witness need not be in opposition to gentleness and respect. Moreover, the context of healthy, trusting relationships can actually add force to our words. But sadly, we often value those relationships more than a clear statement of truth. My family and I didn't move halfway around the world to convert non-Christians. Our desire is simply to represent our good father, to proclaim his excellencies, and to invite others to meet him. We are doing that by building healthy, trusting relationships among those who we believe are held in bondage to lies about who Jesus Christ is. And we are certain that as they see the goodness of our Father in us, they too will want to be his children through Christ. And even if they don't, they will have no choice but to give glory to our Father when they see our lights shining. You don't need a clever presentation of the gospel and you don't need to be a leader in your church or in a ministry in order to proclaim the good news. You need only the desire to introduce someone to your dad. And the good news for that someone is that your dad wants to be theirs as well. Let us faithfully represent him because God chose to make his impression on you to be an expression of him. And finally, if you have never put your faith and hope in God through Christ, 
there is good news for you. In verse 10, Peter makes reference to the prophet Hosea from the Old Testament. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a beautiful, incredible picture we have of our good Father. God doesn't love you because of what you have done or what you can do. The good news is that God loves you and has mercy for you despite what you have done or what you can do. He loves you because he is a compassionate and merciful father to children who are born into brokenness. Christ has paid to set you free from that brokenness, the sorrows or the regrets of your past to a present peace in all circumstances and an eternal future of inexpressible joy. Pay attention here. If you know God as your father, would you please raise your hand? For the rest of you, look around, keep your hands up, please. These are my brothers and sisters. I love them. We're far from a perfect church as we're gonna learn in the coming weeks. I'll be the first to admit that. But everything good in us, we learned from our heavenly father. You might struggle with the very idea of a good father because maybe it's as simple as the fact that your dad might not have been good. Our father is good. He is infinitely good. So if you are ready to be adopted as a son or daughter of the living God today, would you let one of us introduce you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can even come to you as Father. That though you are the creator of the universe, though you are all powerful, though you are all knowing, you are also merciful and compassionate like a father. I thank you that you saved me from my sin and that I have been adopted as your son. I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters here today and watching online. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage us and embolden us to share, no, to proclaim your excellencies to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.